Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Sunday, June the 5th, 2022. It is currently 1022 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. So I guess I should say welcome to a late night episode of the Theology Central Podcast, and I hope this episode accomplishes what it needs to accomplish because this episode is kind of designed to to land the plane, all right? The plane has kind of been flying now for a long time today, and we now need to bring it into, well, a landing. We, we need to land this plane safely and hopefully in a way that will be greatly productive. The plane took off flying about 10.05 this morning. 10.05 this morning, I was standing behind the pulpit at Victory Baptist Church in the middle of nowhere, Texas, and I told everyone to open up their Bibles to the book of Jude so we could continue our study in the book of Jude. By 11.05 a.m., or that was 10.05 a.m., AM. If I said 10.05 PM, that would be incorrect. 10.05 AM is when everything started. That's when the plane took off. And it started with, open your Bibles to the book of Jude. Let's continue our study. By 11.05 AM, well, for all practical purposes, the plane was out of control. And and, in my mind, it had already crashed and there was no point in going on. In fact, I was humiliated. I was embarrassed. the, The whole sermon just went completely the wrong way. I was confused by everything that occurred. Nothing made any sense. I was so frustrated. But what do you do? What do you do? Now, as a pastor, when the sermon goes wrong, when it goes bad, you're embarrassed, you're humiliated, you feel like you failed, you just just want to crawl in a hole and die. The reality is you leave church, everyone else leaves church, they all go home, have dinner, you know, take a nap, go do whatever they want to do. They have already forgotten about it, right? Some of the people there don't even, they didn't even come back Sunday night. They just just went on with their life. They're like, hey, it's Sunday, I'm going to go do my thing. Well, I have been struggling all day with what happened, and I've been trying to correct it, right? So in some ways, the plane has just been out of control flying since around 10.05 this morning. And so I started this afternoon working on saying, okay, I messed up. It it did not go the right way. I don't know what happened. I lost control of the situation. But you know what? I'm going to do everything I can to make sure before this day ends, I I make up for every mistake I made, and I find a way to bring this plane and land it so that when we get off the plane, and again, I'm using illustration and allegorical language, we can say, wow, okay, I think I understand Jude better than I did before we started. I don't know if I've accomplished that, but I'm going to try. I guess the principle in all of this, even though this is about Jude, there is a principle here that I really want to get across, all right? It's now and I'm and I'm not preaching this to you. I'm preaching it to myself because I need to hear this. Whenever you experience discouragement, whenever you experience failure, whenever you experience humiliation, embarrassment, whatever it is, you can either allow that discouragement, that embarrassment, that humiliation, you can either allow it to defeat you or you can allow it to motivate determination. 
Now, I'm going to be honest. By the time I arrived back at my house about 1230, I all the way driving the car, I just kept going, no, what? What did I do? How did I mess that up? And I kind of walked around the house moping and having a pity party. But at some point, I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to allow discouragement to lead me to defeat. I'm going to allow discouragement to lead to motivating me to face it with determination. I'm going to I'm going to have it lead to determination. I'm going to be determined to get back up and do what I can. So that's what we've been trying to do today. And what we've been doing is I realized, okay, everything went wrong. I know what I'll do. I'll 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 go back to the sermons that really inspired our entire series on Jude. And that was a a series of sermons preached at Southern Seminary by Dr. Albert Moeller. That's what really inspired. One night, one morning around 1 a.m., 2 a.m., I was listening to sermons and he he introduced his study on Jude. And then I heard another sermon from someone else on Jude. I'm like, you know what? If everyone's talking about Jude right now, we'll talk about Jude. So we started our series. And I thought we had done a relatively good job. Oh, some sermons better than others, but I thought we had done a great job and everybody was somewhat on the same page until the last couple of weeks where I felt like I started, there was a disconnect between me and everyone. There was this disconnect and I could not figure out what is wrong. And I think it has something to do with this point that I keep trying to emphasize. Either the people don't get it or they don't seem to understand the significance of it. So let me try to explain, because I want to land this plane, and, and we're going to land this plane by finishing our review. Now, what we basically have done, we've taken, we've taken two sermons from Dr. Albert Moeller. We reviewed just a part of one. That was his introduction. Then we jumped like two, or two maybe two sermons ahead, and we're, inter- we're reviewing a part of that to try to put all of this together. But let me remind you, the book of Jude is a letter written to a group of people, to believers, to a church, I guess you could say, uh, to a church. And what it's trying to do is trying to help them deal with the danger that has infiltrated the church, trying to basically rewrite and destroy Christianity. And it's very obvious what he does here. Uh, Well, let's just break it down. So first, I try to give an outline to the book, and I outline the book the following way. Jude, verses 1 through 2, greeting. In that greeting, the author is identified, the recipients are identified, and a blessing is giving. All of that is found in verses 1 through 2. It's very important to note that the recipients are identified as those who are sanctified, preserved, and called. So those, the recipients of the letter, are those who have spiritual security. They are secure. They are secure. So this is not a warning to them to not follow the false teachers, which is how this is typically preached. A lot of people go to Jude and like, he was writing to these believers in the church saying, hey guys, there's false teachers in the church. Be careful, be warned, don't follow them or you'll be destroyed. And I don't believe that's an accurate interpretation of the book because the text itself tells you that the recipients are sanctified, they are preserved, and they are called. They're spiritually secure. So then what's the, so, so the greeting identifies that they're spiritually secure. And then verses three through four, in my estimation, should be all grouped together. And it gives the purpose of the book. 
Jude was going to write up to them about the common salvation, but he found that it was necessary to write unto them to exhort them, key, not to warn them of the danger of the false teacher, but to exhort, to plead, to beg that the people who would receive this letter would earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered. He's like, what I need you to do. This is not like, hey, guys, 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 be careful, be careful. Don't follow those false teachers. No. He's like, hey, you're spiritually secure. Guys, I need you to be motivated. I need you to be determined. I need you to move from your spiritual security to contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. There is one faith, and you must be contending for it. Now, why should they be contending for it? Because some men had crept into the church and they had turned the grace of God into lasciviousness and they had denied the Lord. They are ungodly. There's ungodly people have infiltrated the church, ungodly men who have infiltrated the church. They've turned the grace of God into lasciviousness and they're denying God. Contend with them. So in my estimation, verses one through two, There's the greeting, verses three through four. There's the purpose. There's, and I've I've tried to emphasize that a thousand times because I hear sermon after sermon and I've looked at commentaries that basically treats the rest of Jude like, hey guys, don't follow this. Don't follow that sin. Don't do this. And it's like, no, he's trying to encourage them to exhort. They're already spiritually secure. Okay, so, That's the way I outlined it. Then I tried to explain to everyone that outlining the rest of the book poses some serious problems. And here's the problem. Typically in an outline, let's say you've got 20 verses. Well, you'll say one through three, that's point one in your outline, verses four through seven, verses eight through 10, whatever. And you just go in order, grouping verses together to, you know, one through three, four through seven, 8 through 12, whatever, and you group them together until you can account for every verse within the chapter in order. That's typically how it's done because the text usually allows that to to some degree. There are some chapters, especially in Proverbs, that that can be almost impossible, but typically that is how it works. And my argument is you can't do that with Jude, even though almost all the books and all the commentaries do so. And here, this is key. I believe, and I'm going to emphasize this again. I know I'm doing a little bit of review, but that's okay because we want to make sure we land this plane and nobody is confused by what has happened, okay? I, this is a, like, I, my in my mind, when we started preaching Jude, I, I saw Jude as an opportunity to kind of do not only a study of Jude, but do, do a hermeneutical study because I'm always trying to teach people Bible study methods and hermeneutical methods, Right? And one of the things I always emphasize is that when you have a, whatever book you study, whatever chapter, you have to outline because an outline is an observational tool. You cannot interpret what you haven't observed. Outlining is for you to get what's on the text on paper so that you can clearly observe all of the parts, clear observation. If your outline contains any interpretation Your outline is flawed, it is broken, and it stops serving its original purpose. Outline is an observational tool, not an interpretational tool. 
if you place if if you're like, well, this and this fits together, and you're and you're and that's based off your interpretation. You've just grouped things together based off an interpretation, which means you're no longer outlining. You're interpreting. The outline is supposed to go. Here's what's in these verses. Here's what's in these verses. You want to make it clear. You want to make it obvious just based off the text. No interpretation. Because until you see what's in the text, until you clearly observe what's in the text, you can't interpret. Now, once you have your outline and then you begin to study the text, then you can say, those two things are connected. Those are connected. And then you can, especially if it requires an interpretation. Now, if it's just clear in the text, then okay. But in most cases, that requires an interpretation. Observation is always first before interpretation. If you interpret that which you haven't spent time observing, your interpretation is going to be flawed. The quality of your interpretation is based off the quality of your observation. So, or the quality of your interpretation is based off the quality of your observation. So here was my argument. One through two, clearly the greeting. Three through four, clearly that's giving you the purpose of the book. Hey, the purpose is to exhort you to contend. And why do you need to contend? You've got a danger inside the church. And there are men who are ungodly, who've turned the grace of God into lasciviousness, and they denied God. All right? Now, I believe starting in verse 5, we have what I called a reminder or, or, or remembrance or, or however you want to, to, to the remembrance or the reminders. Jude sets out to remind the people. Now, this is important. He's reminding the people. He's not warning them. He's reminding them of, of historical examples of great judgment. And the reason he's doing this is not because they're in, they're in danger of judgment. No, they're called, they're sanctified, they are preserved. They're eternally secure. Their, their security is in, in place. So what he's doing is like, I, what I want to do is I want to show you what happens to people like the men who've crept into the church. Because when you depart from the faith that once delivered unto the saints, when you depart from the true God, when you depart from that which is spiritual to turn to that which is sensual or carnal, judgment awaits. So the idea is I'm going to remind you of great examples of judgment so that you will be motivated to reach out to these people who are doing these things and try to, in a sense, pluck them out of the fire so that you can possibly be involved in their salvation, their repentance, their restoration back to the one true faith. Those reminders start in verse 5. You have the reminder pointing to Egypt's being, or Israel coming out of Egypt and end up being destroyed because they did not believe. You have a reminder of angels who left their first estate who end up in chains. You have the story of Sodom and Gomorrah who go after strange flesh and they are judged. That is reminder, reminder, reminder. But then all of a sudden in verse 8, it's not a reminder. What do you have in verse 8? Likewise, also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh. That is a description of the present God, men who've crept into the church. So here's what you have taking place in verse 5 all the way to at least past verse 17. What you have is reminders and descriptions. 
The reminders are designed to motivate them to contend by pointing to the past. The description, the descriptions are there to help them identify the men they need to contend with by giving a present day description of them. Reminder pointing to the past, the descriptions pointing to the present. Reminder is different than a description. A description is different than a reminder. The reminder has a different purpose than the description. The reminder is to motivate to contend. The description is to help them identify who they need to contend with. They're completely separate. So my argument was, we go through verse 5. Verse 17 is another reminder. We at least go through 5 through 17. We identify all of the reminders. We've got Israel, we've got angels, we got Sodom and Gomorrah, we got a reminder about Michael the arch archangel. We have a reminder about Cain, Balaam, and Kor. Now, verse 11 also has descriptions, but you would put it as a reminder. Then you have a reminder about Enoch in verse 14, and then you have a reminder about the words of the apostles in verse 17. So you have reminders. So I would group all of the reminders together. Then I would regroup all of the passages that simply describe. For example, verse, and I, I don't know why this is complicated. Verse 9 is not a description of the, of the men who crept into the church. It's a reminder of what Michael the archangel did and did not do. There is no description in verse 9 of the men who crept into the church. It's a reminder. There is no description and verse 17 of the men who crept into the church, it's a reminder about the words of the apostles. There is no description of the men who crept into the church in verse 14 when it describes Enoch. All right? So those are reminders. So my argument, group the reminders together, group the, des the, the descriptions together, or, and, and separate them. So we would have uh, greeting or introduction, how you want to say it, purpose, reminders, and descriptions of the false teachers. Then the last part, you could argue, like, we, we could give it a different name. I'm, I haven't gone there yet. I thought that that would, would make the most sense, but this morning, I found out that not everyone seems to agree with that idea and wanted to try to merge the reminders and the descriptions. And I thought to try to merge them was offering an interpretation, trying to show the connection between the reminder and the descriptions, which is not to be done in an outline. So that's how everything went a little crazy. So what we're doing is we're listening to Dr. Albert Moeller, and in his outline, he does something really weird. He groups verse 4 to 17 all in one group. He doesn't break them up at all. He hasn't given it a title, but here's what bothers me and what he has done. Once he gets into these reminders, he doesn't really, he kind of calls them reminders, but here's what he does. He almost forgets what the reminders are there for. He immediately starts talking about liberals who've crept into the church and homosexuality and the homosexual movement that's crept into the church. Almost like, hey, this is warning the church, look out for liberals and look out for, for those who deny the supernatural and look out for the, of the homosexual movement. And I'm like, that's not the point of Jude. 
It's not about warning us about these things. It's about using these past judgments against those things to motivate us to contend for the faith with those who've crept into the church who are going to be judged. Now, there's nothing wrong with preaching against homosexuality. There's nothing wrong against preaching against liberal theology that denies the supernatural. But when you preach, your interpretation of the text has to be consistent with the purpose of the book. Sometimes we give the purpose of the book, and then as soon as we get into preaching, we're like, forget the purpose of the book. This is a chance to preach against homosexuality. I'm like, that's not what this is there for. Now, we, are, we have reached the point in our sermon review where Dr. Moeller, that's what he, Albert Moeller, he's, well, he's, he's, he's preaching against homosexuality. Now, is he going to bring it back to the purpose of the book? I don't know. I feel like he's kind of driven the car off the road and he's forgotten the purpose. Maybe he brings it back. We don't know, but we're going to finish the review. All right. I know that was a lot of my own review, but I want to make sure that we have this clearly understood so that our series on the book of Jude will be the most extensive and thorough study in Jude that you can find by really emphasizing observation before interpretation. You can't bring an interpretation interpretation into your observational outline. Observation is a, is, a, is a study tool, and that this is very important, that once you start working on the text, if your interpretation it begins to deviate from the purpose of the book, you know that you're, 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 you're going the wrong direction. I don't know if that Albert Moeller appears to be doing that. Let's see. Right now, he's in the middle of preaching against homosexuality, and he's not tied the reminder about Sodom and Gomorrah to the actual purpose of the book. Let's see what he does. It, it, it's a wrong desire. It, it couldn't be more clear in the language that is used. The Apostle Paul, for example, if you take the, the Romans literature and the, and, and the passages from 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul explicitly uses such graphic nouns so that both the active and the passive partner, and you say, yes, we're well, talking about this in church. Yes, it's in the Bible. Are both indicted, unlike in Rome, where only one of them was considered to have been sinfully or, or shamefully behaved. It's, it's all there. And the point is, is that you had liberal biblical scholars who were saying, if you look back and you look to Genesis 19, and you look back to the Old Testament record of, of the sin of Sodom and the sin of Gomorrah, but in particular, the, the sin of the men of Sodom, they will say, look, it wasn't male homosexuality. It was inhospitality. It was that. And again, that has nothing to do with Jude. Jude is simply using the story of Sodom and Gomorrah to demonstrate those who depart from where they're supposed to be. In this particular case, they're going after strange flesh. And we could talk, and we may do a special episode just about that again, because I think a lot of people miss my point on that. That those people who, in a sense, go after the wrong thing, depart from the norm, from the faith, from the from the rule of faith, from the from the truth, end up being judged. Hey guys, you got men in your church, they've departed from the one true faith. They're going after things. They've turned the grace of God into lasciviousness so they can pursue their own lustful desires. 
They're going to be judged just like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Be motivated, be determined to contend with them so that we can pluck some from the fire. That's the point. The point is not to have a discussion about homosexuality. The point is there. the judgment is, ind- is indicates the kind of judgment the people who have crept into the church are going to face. Now, I know in our minds, we have a tendency to go, well, they deserve judgment. Let them be judged. And Jude is like, no, you need to be bothered for them and contend for them, contend with them so that they can be saved. They were inhospitable, and people with a straight face made these arguments. And you may not have even heard these arguments because the people making those arguments don't even make them anymore. I I just noticed as I was thinking about this, even in preparing to preach this text, those churches have gone so far from the gospel that like the fact they never have to defend not believing in the virgin birth anymore because they just never talk about it anymore and there's no one left in their churches to ask about it anymore. They've moved so far on that basically they've given up on the argument the Bible doesn't condemn same-sex relationships, behaviors, and affections to, well, it's the Bible. What's that got to do with us? I can still remember hearing a lecture in which I was told that this is all laid out, and and I was told here is what some of the new scholarship is presenting, and it was it was John Boswell's scholarship. I still remember, still remember the book, still confined where with my highlighter and my red flare pen I had underlined the offending passages where he said it was inhospitality, not sensuality, that it was homophobia on the part of the Christian church that led Christians to think now that Sodom and Gomorrah and Genesis 19 had anything to do with sex. But you know who else believed that evidently? I can remember sitting and reading the Bible when it struck me someone else believed that there was a link that was sensual and that someone else was Jude. As Jude says it right here, in this paragraph, he speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged, well, in hospitality, yes. That is not where he goes. In sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Notice the judgment again, just as we saw before. Serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Then look at verses 8 and following. It's an amplification of the same pattern. Yet in like manner, these people are also relying on their dreams. So this is a problem. In other words, this is a very clear indication. Departing from Scripture. In other words, they're not following Scripture. They're following dreams. Dreams. I see, and he just immediately links 8 to the reminders. And this is where I, I... Look, look, this happens so much time, uh, so often in preaching. And look, the average church member doesn't care. I understand. I know that I'm getting all picky about hermeneutics and biblical interpretation and biblical interpretation principles, but the books are written for a purpose. Jude is written for a purpose. The reminders is to remind the, is to use these reminders to motivate the people in the church to contend. So the reminder ends... In verse uh, 7, 
right? The, 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 the third reminder ends in verse 7 with Sodom and Gomorrah. Then in verse 8, it jumps, it leaves the reminder and goes to the description. Likewise, also these filthy dreamers, those are the people that have crept into the church, defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. But that's a description of the present people. The reminder is to motivate. The description is to identify. The reminder is like, hey, these guys are going to be judged. You need to contend. The description is, here is what they're like. Here is how you identify them. He just immediately just, he, he doesn't draw any distinction. The, the dreamers is not going back to the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. The, the, it's talking about the people in the church at that time. The reminder looks to the past. The description looks to the present for Jude and those people. He's not drawing any distinction. Now, let me make it clear. Albert Moeller is smarter than I am, a better preacher than I am, a better teacher than I am, and knows more than I will ever know. But at the same time, I can't allow that to intimidate me, going, well, I just must go along with what he does. No, when preaching, it's so easy for us to go, oh, wow, this is, I can, I can talk about liberals and homosexuality because it mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. If you want to preach about homosexuality, then just preach on homosexuality. You may make a reference to Jude 7 to demonstrate that clearly sensuality was at play and what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. But let me just remind everyone, the real issue, because I, everyone seems to forget this, Verse 6 is about angels, right, who left their first estate. Some people would believe that refers to Genesis 6, where the sons of God, angels, have physical relations with the daughters of men. Other people say that's absolutely ridiculous. But whatever the case, it's about angels. In 7, everyone just sees Sodom and Gomorrah and immediately go, homosexuality. Now, I'm not saying homosexuality wasn't being practiced in the city, because clearly it was. When they see these angels, remember, angels come into the city, they appear to be men, and the men gather around and they bring them out so that we can know them. Clearly, they want to practice homosexuality. But let's remember, what they were really doing is whether unknowingly, they were, in a sense, trying to leave their estate, leave their physical domain by trying to engage in physical relations with spiritual beings. If six is about angels doing the angels trying to have relations with the daughters of men, they're leaving their the spiritual state to try to have a physical relationship with, with the women of flesh. And in verse seven, you have men of flesh trying to engage in relations with the uh, spiritual beings. It's very similar and so a lot of times we just focus on the homosexuality, but in a sense, homosexuality is there, but they are going after strange flesh in the sense they're going after angelic beings. Everyone just immediately said, oh, Sodom and Gomorrah, boom, we just immediately run into homosexuality. But there's something else going on. They were trying to sleep with angels, right? But everybody wants to use this to just immediately just have a discussion about homosexuality, forgetting the purpose of the book. The key here is not to have a discussion about homosexuality. The reminder is to say that the men who crept into the church are going to be judged in like manner, right? And then eight is describing the men in the church who had crept in unawares. Their Christianity is not biblical Christianity. It's dream religion. And let me tell you, there are an awful lot of people who think they are Christians and they are devotees of a dream religion, their Christianity is not defined by Scripture. It's defined by their own dreams. 
You have to be wondering where they have crept in where you have not recognized them yet. How are they described? They defile the flesh. They reject authority, just like the the demons, the uh, angels, excuse me. The, The angels would not respect their appropriate sphere of authority. Likewise, we're told that those in the church who have infiltrated, who have crept in, they defile the flesh. They reject authority. They blaspheme the glorious ones. They are. They speak sacrilegiously. They uh, they they pervert the, the the spiritual authority of the glorious ones, meaning the angels, the saints. But now, see, I agree. There's a connection between the description and the reminder. I agree. There's a there's a connection. But now you have to try to interpret that. You have to try to put the pieces together. For my outline, I'm going to separate the reminders. Five, six, and seven, and the first description is in eight. I'm going to put the description separate from the reminder. When we work through the text, I'll we're going to look at all of the reminders and see what the message is there. The message is, hey guys, these people are going to be judged. Be motivated to contend with them. Now, guys, he's going to give the description of the people in the church. And notice what he does when we study the descriptions. He's going to draw some of this from those reminders. Right now, that that's an interpretation that we have to put together. That's why I would not place that in my outline because now I'm putting an interpretation there. All right, but let's see. So now I'm assuming he's going to understand that verse nine. Well, goes back to a reminder because he's going to talk about something that's happened in the past with Michael the archangel. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. Wait, wait just a minute. What is that? Third Kings? Is this, I don't know, is, where is that? Where is, where is Michael? The... Now, I agree. Where is that? But before I say where... Why is it? I think the argument is, hey, guys, when Michael contended with the devil, remember that they've been being, they're being reminded to contend for the faith. So he gives them a reminder, hey, contend for the faith. But when you do so, remember how Michael contended, because when he contended with the devil, uh, when he was contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, does not bring about him railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuked thee. This seems to be this reminder is designed to teach them how to contend for the faith. This goes back to the people. He's ex- Remember, the whole purpose of the book is to the people who need to contend for the faith. This is telling them how to contend. I agree. Where is this from? Where does he get this information? But ultimately, before we jump to that, we need to know why it's there. Hey, guys, contend for the faith. Now, when you do so, and look, these people you're contending with, man, when you see the description, they're going to bother you, but don't act like Michael and the way he handled himself. We, we, there's a right way to contend, and there's a wrong way to contend. Archangel disputing over the body of Moses. Frankly, we don't know. Jude knew. We didn't know. Evidently, it was a common enough reference, perhaps, in the intertestamental period between the the Old and New Testaments, perhaps from 
from Jewish written sources, we must assume. Somehow there's a reference here. What do we know about that? Nothing except this, period. This is it. Evidently, that's what happened. There is only one angel described as an archangel, and that is Michael, and evidently he had a job to do when it came to the body of Moses, and he didn't rebuke the devil. That's the point. He didn't rebuke Satan. He instead, to avoid blasphemy, simply gave Satan over to God's judgment. God will speak that word of judgment. The archangel dared not speak that judgment himself. Now, that's just a warning. Talk about proper sphere of authority. That's a warning to, to us. We have a certain authority that is given to us, but it is a designated limited authority. The angels have Instead of applying it to us, apply it to the text, to the people that he is saying, guys, I need you to contend for the faith. Why, why do you just immediately forget them? It's a, isn't it a warning to those he's exhorting to contend for the faith to contend in a correct manner? He's using this reminder. All of the reminders is to get them to contend or to show them how to contend. At a sphere of authority given to them, and they are condemned when they reach outside that authority. Our authority is not to judge except by teaching the judgment of God. And that is the judgment that is laid out here. But these people, according to verse 10, they blaspheme all that they do not understand. Now, please note, verse 10, but these, see, now he goes back from the reminder back to a description. You got, the reminders and descriptions have two, they're different. They're not the same. That's why I'm not going to put them together. And they have different purposes. The reminder is to motivate to contend and how to contend. The description is to give identifiers, right? Hey, but these, the people in the church, they speak evil of those things which they know not by what they know naturally as brute beast and those things they corrupt themselves. They don't know what they're saying. They don't know the right thing to say. You need to know the right way to say it, the right thing to say, and the right way to say it. So he's, he's like, you contend with them the right way, even though they speak the wrong way, right? But it's too, the description may be connected to the reminder, but I'm separating them for observational purposes. In preaching, I will put the two together, all right? But okay, let's, let's continue. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Some things come and go. Like I mentioned, the, the effort on the part of many to say the Bible doesn't really condemn homosexuality as a, as, as a lifestyle among consenting adults and non-coercive contexts. The Apostle Paul, we're told, didn't know anything about the possibility of same-sex marriage. <laughs> no, Apostle Paul knew about the impossibility of same-sex marriage. My point is that those churches that moved in that direction now seemingly don't even need those arguments because they simply departed so far from the Scripture that they don't need to publish those books anymore. Almost all of those books are published 1979, 1984. Efforts were made by 
people closer to evangelicalism to make those arguments in the last several years, but I don't think they gained much traction either because the issues are now so clear. And that's what we see in this passage is uh, eventually the people making those kinds of arguments show themselves. See, he's putting the emphasis on the false teachers where the purpose of the book, it's stated. I, I, I mean... I'm telling you, this book should be used in every hermeneutics classroom, in every Bible college, and every seminary, because this just gives you the example that as a preacher, you can't go, ooh, that looks good. No, you, you are bound by the text. Let me read it to you again. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write uh, unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. How am I going to get you to contend for the faith? Verse 5, I will therefore put you, not the false teachers, I'm going to put you in remembrance, the ones he's trying to get to contend for the faith. That's what he's trying to do. He's writing to those, the people of the church, not the false teachers. So this is now turning into liberalism, homosexuality, how this is all coming to the church. The focus is all of the reminders is to motivate them to contend. All of the descriptors is to help them identify what's going on there. He keeps moving it to what's happening in the church now. We have to first understand what was going on there and the identifiers of those people, not the fact that the arguments about homosexuality are no used anymore. It, he, he's trying to com completely connect it to, well, current situations. There, there's times to do that, but the first point here is... If you're gonna if you're gonna compare it to new things, this is how you would compare it. We have things that have crept into the church. You can say the LGBT movement, whatever. I think there's other issues in the church, but whatever the issues are in the church, and now you to me need to be motivated to contend with them because they're going to receive the same kind of judgment as these men who crept into that church was faced with, and that should motivate you to contend with them. The language here, however, just in terms of those who crept in, those who are seeking to seduce the church theologically, who are seeking to pervert the gospel into sensuality, the people who are the enemies of the gospel who have crept in, whether we see it here in Jude or in Second Timothy, just notice the indictment because it's language that if not in Scripture, I would not dare to use. I wouldn't know the words of spiritual judgment to use here. You shouldn't trust that I would know what words to use of judgment here. What, what words are enough? What words are too much? I don't know. The Scripture knows because the Holy Spirit inspired. Jude, inspired by the Holy Spirit, knew the language to use. This is God's inspired language to use. They blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe unto them, for they walked in the way of Cain. Okay, now we need to see here there is a progression. There's, there's so many patterns we find here in this passage in the book of, of Jude. We have a certain people, and then the examples of the children of Israel, the angels in Sodom and Gomorrah, and then when we, we are told that they rely on dreams, we are told that the result is that they defile the flesh, they reject authority, they blaspheme the holy ones. See, so he keeps merging it all together. Reminders are separate from the descriptions. The reminders is to remind the people 
These people are going to be judged, contend. The descriptions is how you identify them. Verse 11 is one of those interesting verses where you have a reminder, Cain, Balaam, Kor, remember those things, but this also serves as a description. So I would put verse 11 in my outline in the reminder section and in the description section. The reminder is, okay, they've gone in the way of Cain, right? They've gone in the way of Cain. These individuals, it's describing them, but hey, we've got to be reminded about Cain to understand these people or Balaam or Kor. Right? So again, I would, I would, there's two things happening. And then a bit later, we're told that they're like unreasoning animals with three illustrations, not of the animal kingdom, but just of the, of the behavior. The first is the way of Cain. Of course, this takes us back to Genesis 4. The way of Cain is a way of disobedience and a way of rebellion, a way of greed, a way of jealousy, a way of sin, and a way of murder. The way of Cain. And then you see the second is Balaam's error. They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Back to Numbers chapter 22. Balaam's refusal to obey, refusal to speak. Korah's rebellion. Number 16, you see, so those three examples, the way of Cain, Balaam's error, the rebellion of Korah, these are blemishes on your love feasts, we are told. So here's the evidence of, of this infiltration. Here's what happens, and verse 12 makes it clear. Blemishes on your love feasts, they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves. Then notice the pictures that come. Waterless clouds. Then there's all these descriptions. Verse 12, descriptions. Verse 13, descriptions. Goes back to describing. Why the descriptions? For identification. Then in 14, back to what? A reminder. And, and a reminder of basically a prophecy. And that prophecy deals with judgment. Again, it's a reminder. These people are going to be judged. Therefore, be motivated by mercy compassion and love to contend with them that you may pluck some of them out of the fire. The reminder is motivating. The description is for identifying. I, I, you've got to keep those separate to see the, the purpose and reason for each. It's the first here. Waterless clouds swept along by winds. You see that? We're in a part of the country. You can see that pretty easily. Waterless clouds little white puffy things that come, no danger of water from them. They just sweep away. And, and then you have fruitless trees in late autumn. If there's any time a tree ought not to be fruitless, it's late autumn. And then you will see here they're described as twice dead uprooted. Dead in their fruitlessness and now dead in their rootlessness. Nothing, nothing more useless than a cloud without water, nothing more useless than a tree without fruit that is uprooted. And then wild... And just what's interesting is he's made it through this section with almost no reference back to the purpose of the book. He's almost completely disconnected this entire section from the purpose of the book. He's not demonstrated how these reminders and descriptions have anything to do with the purpose, which is to motivate the people in the church to contend. This is where 
your interpretation becomes disconnected from the purpose of the book, and then everything begins to fall apart. Now, I'm just going to fast forward a little bit because of time. Here we go. And you see that here. There, there, some of these who creep in with their error bring corrupting influences. The church has to face honestly, every church in every generation, in every place, till Jesus comes, we have to face the reality that corrupting influences are not only just outside the church as temptations and as threats, but they can come inside the church by those who creep in and ask questions like, has God really said that that's sin? Do we really know that that's sin? Who are we to judge? The third issue we see is corrosive character. You see this in, for example, verses 12 through 13, the indictment here, this, this, this character of people, they show their rebellion against the truth of God. They show their rebellion against the gospel. They show their, their rebelliousness. They show their un ungodliness. They, they reveal their character over time. True Christian character is gladful reception of the Word of God and eager obedience to the Word of God and unsuspicious affirmation. See, this is becoming a sermon warning us about false teachers. This is not designed to warn me about false teachers as much as it is to motivate me to contend with those who are false teachers who creep in because they're going to be judged and destroyed just like all of these reminders indicate. The identifiers is so I can identify them. Now, there's nothing wrong with understanding the, the or I'm saying the descriptions serve as identifying marks and how to identify them. But the purpose of this is not to warn me of the false teachers as much as it is to motivate me to contend because he's already made that clear. And just so that you see, right when you move forward, look what happens, right? And, and look, keep, uh, keep ourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And if some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. It's to motivate you to contend so that some of them may be saved. That's the purpose. And it almost always turns into, look at all of these bad stuff and look at all of these bad people. Be warned, be on the lookout, don't follow them or you'll be destroyed. That literally destroys the purpose of the book as identified in the book. glad affirmation of all that is contained, all that is revealed, all that is given to us in the Word of God, every single verse. The first time you hear a preacher read a text and say, that doesn't have to mean what it sounds like, you're in big trouble. Creeping error, corrupting influences, corrosive character, and then forth counterfeit Christians. There are those who simply are not Believers, and this text makes it very clear, they were marked out from the beginning, and God knows who they are. Here's some good news. God knows who the real Christians are. God knows who the counterfeit Christians are, and those counterfeit Christians are already marked for condemnation. That's good news. In other words, God knows how to separate the wheat from the See, I think that's a... When it talks about them being... In fact, I'll read it because he's making a reference here to Jude uh, verse 4. 
for some people who were designated for this judgment long ago. He's immediately saying some of these people are false Christians and they have been judged by the eternal decree of God. Therefore, there's no hope for them to be saved. That's That's not what this is referencing. It's referencing that they had been condemned in the past, long ago. In the Old Testament, false teachers and false prophets had been condemned. They have been condemned because all false teachers are condemned. They're condemned by the prophecies and the teaching of God's word. But our job is to contend with them and hope that we may pull some from the fire. I truly believe, obviously, salvation is a sovereign work of God, but I don't know the sovereign workings of God. I don't know who's been eternally condemned and who has eternally been marked for salvation. I don't know the internal purposes of God. I see people, and I've been reminded that these people are going to be judged just like these people in the Old Testament and these stories of horrible judgment. So I should be motivated out of mercy, compassion, and love to say, come on, you've got to think about this. Here's what the Word of God is actually teaching. This is almost like, well, some of them are just lost because they've been eternally condemned. So what are you saying? Don't contend with them? The whole purpose of the book is to contend that they may be saved. Jeff. But it's the, church, it's the responsibility of every Christian to be a, about that task with discernment. So it's the task of every Christian church, of every congregation. I mean, See, he's turning this now into the, the purpose is you need to be discerning. No, the purpose, you need to be contending. Now, contending requires discernment. But again, the purpose of the book is to motivate to contend. This is more like, hey, Danger, danger, danger. Don't follow them and use discernment so that you can avoid them. No, this is about contending with them. The first line here is supposed to be regenerate church membership. Remember, we're Baptists. We believe persons must come on their personal profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just a profession, but giving evidence of their, of their obedience to Christ. Counterfeits are going to show up. Counterfeit Christians, counterfeit disciples, in the worst case, counterfeit preachers and counterfeit professors. It's the church's task to be watchful. We have been warned. And then fifth, condemnation assured. So creeping error, corrupting influences, corrosive character, counterfeit Christians, and condemnation assured. Repeated over and over again, verses 4, 6, 13, 14 to 15. The statements of God's judgment could not be more comprehensive. You've got angels in chains locked up until such time as they shall be facing fully the judgment of God. You have those who from the beginning are under condemnation, marked out because of their counterfeit status. You have the warning of what's coming against the ungodly. See, he's almost preaching this like, hey, don't bother contending. Just mark them out. Stay away from them because their condemnation is guaranteed. That can't be the purpose of the book when he tells you to contend. Contend with them Oh, man, this is driving me crazy. I don't understand why Jude is so confusing. Look, but ye beloved, building up yourselves 
in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keeping yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. This is Jude verse, now verse 22. And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. The, the point is, you're eternally secure. The, the, those reminders of judgment is not to say these people can't be saved. The reminders of judgment is to show you how severe and fearful the judgment of God is. So we should be motivated to contend with the men who crept in so that they don't experience that judgment. He's preaching it. Hey, their judgment is certain, so don't bother with them. Stay away from them. Mark them. Beware of them. That that destroys the entire purpose of Jude. I write unto you, and I exhort you, I plead with you to contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. Who are they going to contend with? The people who crept in unawares. We're hearing a sermon that's saying, hey, their judgment is it's certain. They're judged. They're going to be condemned. They're doomed. Don't even waste your time. Just stay away from them. How can we literally make a book say something it's not saying? This is a strange text. You've got angels, and we believe the text here is of angels who are actually acting out sensuality, part of stepping outside their proper sphere. You, you have those who are demonstrating sexual morality, pursuing unnatural desire, and then you just got false teaching all over the place and the perversion of the gospel with those who crept in long ago. So what do we do with this? Well, in conclusion, just remember, this was given to the church as warning, but it's also given to the church as instruction. It, it's given to the church so that we will not be surprised when we discover these patterns. It's given no, 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 no. The book tells you why it was given. To exhort people to contend, not just to warn, not just to, hey, don't, don't be surprised. He's completely ignoring the purpose of the book. I, I don't understand how our interpretation can depart from the purpose established when the book says, here's the purpose the rest of our interpretation must be consistent with that purpose. He's like, hey, look, their judgment is certain. So why was this given? So that we'll be warned and that we won't be surprised. No, it was given so that we would be motivated to contend because we would see the reminders that God's judgment is severe and we would not want to have mercy and compassion and love so that we could pluck some from the fire. That's literally what the text says. ...to the church so that we should be always aware. That's one of the reasons why churches have confessions of faith. It's one of the reasons why the church has had to adopt creeds and confessions. It's one of the reasons why we have church dis discipline. It's one of the reasons why we have vigilance. It's one of the reasons why we do not go silent on issues, but we talk about what we believe. We be very clear about what it is that we teach. And we are held accountable by the full teaching of the entire Scriptures, the Word of God. He's not even mentioning the purpose of the book. Why was this given? He doesn't even mention the literal stated purpose of the book found in the beginning. 
This man can out-preach me any day of the week. He knows more about hermeneutics than I'll ever, I'll for, he'll forget more about hermeneutics than I will ever know. He, he's, a, he's in charge of a seminary for crying out loud. It's just insane that sometimes in preaching, it's all like our brain disconnects. It's like, it's like, we, 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 in our introduction, we're always like, the purpose of the book is this. And then in our preaching, it's like, we forget the purpose. You can never let that happen. And you, and when I say you can never let that happen, don't ever allow the preaching that ignores the purpose of the book and interprets it separate from the purpose of the book to confuse you. You stay consistent with the purpose of the book. Some, some books, the purpose is not explicitly stated, but in this case, it's explicitly stated, explicitly stated. When we're together next, next week I'll have, if the Lord allows, the opportunity to preach the next paragraph and then one more message on the... So he's not going to say anything about the purpose of the book. He just interpreted an entire section, disconnected it from the purpose of the book, and never made reference back to the purpose of the book. This is why I'm so exercised over the book of Jude. This is why I've spent three plus hours, four plus hours today teaching on it. The first hour was deleted because I, there was some disconnect between me and everyone in the church. And I don't understand where the disconnect was because it seems like everyone doesn't understand why I'm so emphasizing this. And I don't think people understand why I'm so exercised by that we have to have a good outline. We have to have a good outline because if our outline merges this together, then what we do is we start once again interpreting when we should be observing and our observation has to be completely clear so that we don't merge these concepts. The reminder is to motivate, to contend. The descriptions are there to help you identify those in the church that must be contended with. The purpose is to motivate contending. The reminders is what does that. The descriptors is so you know who you must be contending with. Greeting, purpose, reminder, descriptors, descriptions. That is the basic outline. The last part we can do whatever we want with later. But for now, I'm going to, that's the outline I'm going with, no matter if the entire world disagrees with me. And I'm going to argue that the purpose of the book is what Jude said it is, and, I don't, and I'm going to reject any preaching that violates that purpose. I may be in the minority, but I'm going to stand. Here I stand, and, and I don't want to just borrow from Luther in some cheesy way, but here I stand because that's what Scripture says. And if we can just interpret a book any way we want, literally disengaging it from the purpose stated by the book, then all hope of ever interpreting anything is lost. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, and a little over 12 hours when everything went wrong this morning at my Sunday school lesson that I take responsibility for, and I feel bad that it went wrong. I never will get that hour back, but I could either face that discouragement and lead to defeat but I decided to let it lead to being determined to try to bring this and land this in a way that would be valuable. I hope something we've said in the three plus hours today on Jude has been beneficial. If it hasn't, it's my fault. It's no one else's. 
but I've done the best I can to try to help you understand Jude to the best of my ability. If there's someone out there that was blessed by it, great. If it was a disappointment to everyone, blame me. All right. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great night. God bless.